news and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Let's take it easy. There's three Arizona teams in the tournament. There's three teams from Arizona in the tournament. (laughs) Jeff Munn is joining me for this segment of the show, at least for part of it. Um, Let's start with ASU in this tournament. Yes, sir. You are the resident expert on uh, on all things college sports. Um, Well, sort of. Does ASU, uh, the prospect tonight for them winning this game um, is pretty good in my mind. They've got a they've got a good shot at winning this game. Yeah, I mean they they are a very it's they've been an inconsistent team all year in terms of their shooting. If they're shooting well from outside, and I mean outside the three point line, uh, it opens everything else up. They they have a solid inside player in Warren Washington, but he's kind of on his own inside a lot. So you've got to open things up. If they're shooting well tonight, they're going to beat Nevada. So let's talk about the prospect of that one team that seems to be every year there's one team that captures the hearts of America that goes deeper than anyone ever expected. Years ago, and I would say more than a few now, I don't want to admit this, but more than a few years ago, it was Florida Gulf Coast. It was FGCU, my hometown. And they made that run and they were the Cinderella team. What are the chances ASU is one of those teams? I think there is a chance. Now, they, they would, if you play it out, they would get TCU in the second round in all likelihood. No apologies to Grand Canyon. But they would probably get Gonzaga uh, on Sunday in Denver. If they, again, it's one of those deals that if they get going from outside, they can play with anybody in the country. Just ask Arizona. And that was my question because I don't know enough about the team to say, is it a fluke when they beat Arizona? It was a half-court shot, but they were in that game to the very no. end against one of the best yeah. teams in the country. It wasn't a fluke in the sense that you're right. It was a it was a close game right to the very end. And it was, uh, no, they, they are capable of competing. They could have beaten UCLA in 10 be earlier in the year. Uh, they are capable of competing with just about anybody, certainly most of the teams in this tournament, if not all of them. So let's go, you mentioned GCU. Let's talk about Grand Canyon University. First round, they won the WAC. Now they've got to play Gonzaga, which is a team that many people favor to go very, very deep in this tournament. What are the chances of them being one of those Cinderella teams getting by Gonzaga and going deep in this you, tournament? You know what's interesting about that game with Gonzaga? For years, the Grand Canyon people have said, we want to be the next Gonzaga. Well, here you go. Now you get to go up against the template. And uh, I've not watched them a great deal this year, but I know that anybody that, you know, Bryce Drew has taken, I think, three different schools now to the NCAA tournament, and he's taken Grand Canyon twice. He knows what he's doing. Uh, And I'll mention this, too. Uh, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if he's out of here after uh, the tournament because there are going to be a lot of schools come knocking on his door. But they are a team. Could they beat Gonzaga? Sure. Sure. Uh, and, and do they have, again, ASU has the team to go deep when they're playing as well as they can play. Do you see the same thing from GCU? Do they no. have the, the do they have the team around them to go deep? If Are they that good of a team? No, I I don't think so. And, I, and again, I'm going to upset some people at Grand Canyon. But the fact of the matter is, is that they did lose 11 games during the year and they're mm-hmm. playing in the whack. And, and I, you know, it just you, you look at those things. They did have kind of a uh, uh, what's the term? They had a moment, uh, an epiphany kind of moment mm-hmm. midway through the season. And they've been a much tougher team since. I, I read a story about them and they had a players only meeting. Yes. And they went on like a six game winning streak and they kind of turned things around. That level of maturity at the college level or that kind of a moment at the college level sometimes does wonders for a program. Yeah, it does. And I and again, anytime you have players that can buy in like that, it goes back to the coaching. 
And I do, you know, Bryce Drew has done a, a, a really outstanding job, especially turning around. I always think one of the toughest things to do in sports is turn a team's focus and fortunes around midseason. Dick Tomey did it one year at the U of A with football, and I, I've, I've always been, I admired him so much as a football coach, and I think that's what Bryce Drew did this year. So then let's talk about the big boys. Let's talk about Arizona. They are seated number two in their region. They have got a great team. There are many people that think they can go deep, but there aren't very many people picking them for the final four. Yeah, and it's. I think it's part of it is the region they're in. Alabama's the number one seed. They're the number one overall national seed. And I've heard a number of people say they think Arizona can get to a regional final against Alabama. Uh, when I watch them play, there is they they tend to be they play out of control sometimes. And uh, the other thing that that always kind of gets my attention is just how frustrated Tommy Lloyd gets on the sidelines during games with players, and that tells me okay either either Tommy Lloyd's expectations are incredibly high or there's something going on with that team that he doesn't like all right, so I've got to ask the most important question. Yes. Uh, my Miami Hurricanes, they got to play Drake. They're, right, they're a fifth seed, but I watched them lose pretty badly to Duke in the, in the, conference, in the conference championship game. Uh, where, and they got a great coach. They have a great coach. And they play really well at times. Yes. But uh, this is tough because I know a guy that went to Drake. You've heard of him, too. His name's Al McCoy. Yeah. <laughs> I really hate picking against Drake. Uh, but, no, you're right. Jim Laranega is a phenomenal coach, and he keeps proving it over and over at Miami. I'll tell you another team out of the ACC that a lot of people are starting to get pretty excited about is Duke. Yeah. And yeah, what, as much as I hate to admit it. <laughs> John Schreier is a yep. first-year head coach, I think, has done a phenomenal job walking into, obviously, a difficult situation, replacing a legend. He's kept that team focused. They're playing their best basketball right now, and we've seen it a million times. The team gets hot at the right time. You may not; they may not be on your radar at the start, but they end up being there at the end, holding the trophy. What is it about these tournaments? Um, I'm not a huge basketball fan. I'm not a huge college basketball fan, but I love March Madness. There is a Christmas tournament that happens in my hometown. It's called the City of Palms Classic. It's one of the biggest high school tournaments in the country, and Oak Hill Academy has played in it, and some other schools. And everybody in town, that gym is full all day long for these tournament games. What is it about these tournaments that excites people so much? There are two things that work in the NCAA. One is the the one and out factor. That you, every time you take the floor, your season could be at an end. The other thing is the upsets and the Cinderella stories. Now, some people would say, well, the Cinderella stories don't translate into great TV ratings. People want to see Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, etc. But we still get excited about uh, people like Sister Jean yeah. at Loyola of Chicago. Right. So I, th- there must be some validity to the fact that Cinderella's do bring TV numbers. But uh, and. I Boy, I really hate bringing myself into this, but Why not? I'm going to have to. Do it. The years that I've broadcast ASU women's games, we've been to the NCAA tournament a number of times, and it's always that feeling when the game starts that this could be it. 
And uh, I remember in 2019, and I hate to bring this up too, we beat Miami in Coral Gables. We were a five. We beat Miami when they were a four, and we had to rally late to do it. And it was the euphoria of that moment that told you everything this tournament's about. When you rally late and win as a lower seed in a one or you know win or go home scenario constantly, that's what excites a lot of people, fans, broadcasters, players, etc. Yeah, not, and myself, admittedly, being a very casual basketball fan, I watch every possible game I can in this tournament, and I love it. I love it in the tournament setting. It's great. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that's great. By the way, you know, I didn't know each other at that time, but I can tell you, that traffic in Miami was terrible. It is. It is absolutely It was horrible. awful. It took me an hour to get from downtown Miami to Coral it's, Gables. I, I don't complain about the roads here, man. The freeway system yeah. here is much better than the freeway it's system funny things you remember, with, but that's what I remember. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. I you appreciate it. You got it, pal. It. Uh, Jeff Munn is my, one of my favorite people to talk to about sports or anything else, but he has got the knowledge. Um, coming up in just a moment, um, we're going to talk about an interview I did with Rachel Mitchell. She is our county attorney. And the challenge to the governor, pausing, if not stopping completely, pausing capital punishment. We'll get to that coming up here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate you being here. If you would like to be a Suns insider and catch all the latest breaking news on the Suns and their quest for an NBA championship, it's very simple. Just text the word Valley to 411923. That's Valley to 411923. Um, so let's for a moment, let's talk about uh, what's happening. Uh, Rachel Mitchell, the uh, county attorney, joined me today talking about the death penalty. And um, the reason I asked her why she's challenging the governor on this, uh, the governor has paused executions because she wants to look into the handling or the what they call botched execution. So it isn't about the process of getting the warrants issued. It's what happens after the warrant is issued and the process of the um, execution. So I asked her about that. And here was a a part of her answer. The bottom line is uh, the victims have a right to a disposition in this case. And they've been waiting for over 20 years since the execution of Ted Price in this case. And see, that to me is the biggest issue in this entire process. I don't have a bloodlust. I'm, um, I've always been, when I say a pro-capital uh, punishment, I don't have an issue with capital punishment. If you take someone's life as a society, we're telling you your life will be taken from you, uh, especially if it's done, as she talks about, these these um, aggravating factors that enhance these, these penalties. Um, the way we handle it, though, is wrong. It's wrong for society, but it's especially wrong for the people's closest to the victims, the survivors of those victims. This is a guy that committed this. this he's been sitting in prison for over 20 years, and this is not. A, this is how it always is. And families deserve better. The victims' families. Uh, our justice system, I complain about this quite a bit, that the perpetrators become the victims and the victims uh, are often forgotten about. I'm not a bloodlust person. I'm not someone that says, hang them in the street and let's put it on pay-per-view. It's not my style. I'm not like that at all. Um, I certainly don't want uh, to to circumvent a system and allow someone that isn't guilty of a crime to ever be executed. Uh, I'm not a, a none of that. But we all know that there are circumstances. There are circumstances where people are caught 
parts in the act. There are multiple witnesses. They're, they are arrested with the weapons in their hand. The, the, these things have happened, and they still sit on death row for 20-plus years, and it's about technicalities. And, and because there are attorneys out there that believe that the death penalty is wrong, and they will fight it by any means necessary, which I can respect, although I disagree. I can respect them doing that. What I can't respect is the neglect for the victims' families. The, the, the last meal thing we've talked about. It's absurd. I, I also think, and I don't know if they do this anymore, but I know that when they did an execute when they did executions by lethal injection in the pa- past, they're still using an alcohol swab on the vein before they put the needle in. You're worried about infection. They're going to be dead in 15 minutes. I mean, we get to a level of absurdity to try to get rid of any guilt we have about taking a life. And so I uh, I talked to her about how quickly uh, or how humanely this is done. And she talked about the last execution, which she attended. I attended the last execution, the one of Mr. Hooper, last late last year. And I described for her the situation, and I did not have any concerns that there was any, you know, I, I keep hearing the phrase botched execution. It was not a botched execution. He was, in fact, laughing through mo- most of the procedure. Um, I did not see any indication that he was in any discomfort or pain. There was a slight uh, delay to get actually a smaller needle, as the medical technician described it, so that it would hurt less. So that to me, again, that's that's part of the issue for me is I'm not talking about torture, but I do not understand the painstaking things we do to um, sanitize what's happening. Um, If we are going to take a human life, then we're going to take that human life. I'm not talking about, um, you know, and there are many people that believe, listen, you should die the same way you killed somebody. And I, I would imagine I would imagine if I were a survivor. And I hope that never happens to me if somebody that I loved very much was murdered. And I I will tell you that I've had friends. I've had two friends, coincidentally, both of them women, um, when we were much younger, um, murdered. And, you know, these but these were friends from school. They were not close family members, but it's still it's still hurtful. I still know their siblings. I'm still very close to their siblings. And I can't imagine as a sibling, as an immediate family member of a murder victim, especially if you learn the details of the murder and it's gruesome and you know that your loved one's last moments were in complete fear and torture and 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 just excruciating pain that you would not want to have some level of revenge. But as a society, if we decide we're going to do this, shouldn't we have a system that does it better? That we're not forcing victims' families to wait 20 plus years for adjudication and for disposition and for final justice. We've got to do this faster. We have to do it better. And no one really is pushing that button to make that happen. So the governor is this, uh, my question about the governor's office is this. Is the governor just an anti-death penalty person that is going to use the power of her office to say that, hey, we are going to investigate to make sure it's done properly? But are they slow rolling that investigation? It took for a long time to appoint someone to do the investigation. How long would that investigation take? Is it going to take years? Is it going to take years? 
for her to get to the bottom of this. In other words, that we aren't going to have any more executions, even though there are people on death row. Even that's what uh, Arizona law allows for. Is this what she's going to do? And it's a fair question. And I'm anxious to find out what the, what the truth of the matter is. Um, an interesting thing, big changes possibly on the Phoenix City Council. We're going to talk about what could possibly be happening as a former police officer. It looks like he has already won his race and a race that is still contested. But a, a person winning right now would replace an anti-cop member of the city council. We'll give you details next. And strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 923 FM, and the KTAR News app. It's a great question. Are we possibly going to see a different look on the Phoenix City Council? How different will the uh, you know will it look on the Phoenix City Council as far as ideology goes? And the reason why I ask that, and I think even if you live in another city, this is important for the city you live in. As and I don't know that this turns on one issue. Let's let's start there. But the one issue that sticks out to me is that Carlos Garcia, the incumbent in District 6, is I'm sorry, in, in District 8, is um, an, as a defund the police guy. I've had him in the studio. It's really weird. Um, I had Mr. Garcia on the show. And he was he was a great guest. He was very friendly. He was affable. He had a great conversation. But he is someone that believes in defunding the police. That's just his where he lives. That's part of what he believes. Now, his opponent, the one that has won this race, Keisha Hodge Washington, uh, appears if she's already declared victory, as you just heard Jeff say in the news, although Garcia has not conceded, it looks like she's going to win that. How will the makeup and the position on the city council change just in that one district? district. Now, in the other district, uh, Sal DeCicio's district in District 6, um, Kevin Robinson won pretty handily. Uh, Sam Stone, who is the chief of staff for Sal DeCicio, conceded the race last night. Um, but Kevin Robinson was a police officer in the city of Phoenix for over 30 years, and he rose to the position of assistant police chief. So now think about the difference in representation on the city council. You are getting rid of, at least it appears, I want to be fair, until it's conceded and absolutely sealed. But the way it stands right now, you would be losing a city council member who is a defund the police advocate, and you are, you are gaining someone – that spent over 30 years in the Phoenix Police Department. If I'm a law enforcement officer in Phoenix, I'm feeling a lot better about things. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to agree with every decision that he makes. But I am feeling better that you've got better representation on the council. And it's funny um, that uh, the Office of Accountability and Transparency, OAT, it, that Kevin Robinson could not be in that – could not work in that office. He got elected to the city council. But he couldn't work in the Office of Accountability and Transparency because of his career in law enforcement. That And that happened with the last – I think the last city council was the ones who approved and funded the new Office of Accountability and Transparency, which disallows anybody in law enforcement for working for the office. So that's an – it's just an interesting dynamic. So I would say to the other cities around, if you, if you don't live in Phoenix, you say, well, this doesn't affect me. It may not affect you. But if you look at how different the makeup will be, is this one of the key issues for people?
when uh, when when Keisha Hodge Washington uh, ran for this seat, what were the things if it wasn't the anti-police or the uh, even if it's not anti-police, the defund the police attitude of Carlos Garcia? What was it that changed the minds? Because it's a close race. It's a close enough race that it hasn't been called yet, although she's been consistently leading in the race. But are we seeing this happen all over? When you listen to Mayor, I mentioned earlier, Mayor Adams is taking some heat in New York City because um, the NYPD is shrinking in size. Officers in record numbers are resigning and retiring and moving and doing other things. Um, and he's talking about that they have a crisis right now of law enforcement crisis. You've got Governor DeSantis from the state of Florida traveling to major cities, New York, Chicago, and others, and saying, I think he also went, um, did he go to uh, the Pacific Northwest. I can't remember where else the governor went, but the governor of Florida went on a on a tour where he spoke to law enforcement leaders and said to them, "Hey, if your members, if the members of your organizations, if your officers, if your troopers, if your deputies are not feeling the love here, let them know, man. We've got openings. Florida is open for business. And so, are we starting to see across the across the spectrum this change in attitude toward policing? Are we finally starting to realize that that pendulum is going to swing in the other direction, and that law enforcement is necessary? Now, I will say to you, and I've been tried to be as fair as I can about this. I am un, unapologetically pro law enforcement and um, pro public safety. Um, uh, when I started hearing, and I've been hearing, and I'm doing a lot more homework now on this. When I started hearing, because I live in Phoenix, about Phoenix Fire and how understaffed they are, how how many firehouses, how many you know, how many fire stations do we need in order to give the kind of service that the people of Phoenix deserve and need? Um, the response times being as high as they are, broken down equipment. Um, it's just it, it's public safety is supposed to be what government does, and they're supposed to do it efficiently, and they're supposed to do it effectively, and they're not. But when it comes to when you look at the Phoenix Police Department and what they need and how how they're reacting to things, um, are they going to be able to recruit? Are they going to be able to grow their ranks to what the city deserves? Response times are up. Officer safety is always an issue. Um, There are less and less uh, people working. If you want that community that we've all talked about, we all want the same thing. We want law enforcement officers that are good at their job, that have the equipment they need to do their job, and they have the people they need to do it effectively. And we want all neighborhoods, all communities to feel that the police are there to do what's best in that community. If you're not a person that breaks the law, you have nothing to worry about. As a matter of fact, you have a friend in the police department. You can trust the police department. If we want that in every neighborhood, you have to have more cops, not less. And, and I, I am as sure about that as anything I've ever been sure of, that having more law enforcement officers that have time to train properly, that ha- have time to do community-based policing, which is so important. I remember being a kid knowing the police in my neighborhood. They, I, I wave when they went by. They knew us by name, not because we were in trouble, but they just knew who we were. Um, you know, I remember when I was a young kid having a neighborhood bully beat me up in my front yard. And when that happened, this police officer 
His last name was Zerimphian. I'll never forget him. He's probably dead by now. Uh, I'll never forget him. He uh, went out of his way to make sure that they went and got that kid and come back to my house and tell me we got this kid and we arrested him and he's never going to do this to you again. And that's when you're that kind of a community based police officer, whether you're a deputy and this guy was a deputy in the sheriff's department in my hometown, it makes an impact in the communities that you patrol. When you are getting in your vehicle at the beginning of a shift and you spend the vast majority of your shift, either chasing radio calls for service or writing reports, you cannot be effective in proactive policing or community-based policing. So let's say we all want the same thing. I may disagree with you in saying that I think you think that the police in this area of town in your neighborhood treat people badly because of the color of their skin or because of the uh, the economic of um, you know situation of that neighborhood. I may disagree with you, but I will tell you I want you to feel. Safe. I want you to have what you're looking for, and you can't have it without enough police officers. You can't train them properly, you can't staff them properly, and you can't do the b- policing the right way to prevent crime and, and patrol the community and develop their relationships. And I just hope that the dynamic shift on the city council is a positive one in public safety. Let's get the Phoenix Fire Department, the trucks and the equipment they need, the manpower that they need, or I should say the labor force that they need. And let's get the firehouses built. They're going to make the city of Phoenix safe. And as far as the police go, let's staff these precincts. Let's get enough officers on the squads on the streets to effectively police neighborhoods and make arrests where necessary. Let's have enough detectives out there to go out and investigate these cases and let's have the city we all deserve and I hope this is a step in that direction we're going to reach out to these two council members um, when the race is called for for Miss Hodge Washington we will reach out to her and I'm going to reach out to Kevin Robinson and see if they'll come on the show to talk about what they see going on differently within the districts now um, in a moment an interesting turn of events as the Attorney General Chris Mays has decided that her office will not pursue any action against her predecessor when it comes to the election and the report on a stolen election we'll give you an update on what this is all about next strong values and strong opinions the mike broomhead show ktar news 92.3 fm and the ktar news app hey thanks for being here uh, interesting turn of events with the attorney involving the attorney general chris mays um she won the election by a very very one of the closest margins of error or margins in in election history i believe in arizona and um as attorney general, one of the first things that happened is there was a report that was released in her administration that was completed by the previous administration, Mark Burnovich, that showed that they didn't find any fraud in the election. They didn't find any evidence of significant fraud in the election Um and so uh, she released the report, and I'm just going to read the, uh, the line from the story. Mays has, made, has said the public deserves to know about the completely shocking documents, which could have helped put an end to the, uh, uh, to the tangle of conspiracy surrounding the election three years ago, well before she made them public. She published an investigative report and two internal memos from 2022 in response to several public records requests, as well as what she described as her own curiosity about the findings of the prior attorney general staff. I'm going to go a little further than that from a different political perspective and before I get to what she's done now. Um, I think that had this report been released sooner, um, I, I think that uh, the, the attorney general was concerned, and I, I don't necessarily blame him, that the way a Republican politics works – 
unfortunately, in Arizona is leadership within the party, not everyone in leadership, but a majority of leadership in the party is so entrenched in election integrity and that the election was stolen in both 2020 and 2022 that if you were a Republican candidate in a primary – And you did not toe the line that the election was stolen. You had no chance of winning that election. I'm not calling it right or wrong. I'm just making that a statement of what I witnessed. Every single candidate that was an election denier won their primary. Every one of them that was endorsed by Donald Trump won their primary. And every one of them lost in the general election. But in order to get to the general election, this was part of the criteria, not because they were forced to say it. I don't I'm not saying they didn't believe it. I'm saying that that was the litmus test. It didn't matter what office you were running for. Their concern was where you stood on election integrity, especially if you were going to run for an office like the Senate, which is what the attorney general was running for. He was caught between a rock and a hard place. This is my opinion on this. Had that report been released much earlier, it may have been a different set of circumstances and priorities in a primary for Republican candidates. It may have let a lot of the other Republican candidates off the hook from having to dance around an issue instead of talking about what their office would do on important issues the voters need to know about. They would they could not have the top priority always be about election integrity. And that could have been the what happened if that report had been released. Um, But that's neither here or there. It wasn't. So it was released by the attorney general, Chris Mays. Well, now she has made a decision. She said, I don't think it's my place to take any steps against my predecessor. I think it should be left to others, including the state bar, to address this. I think that kind of mindset would have served us all as citizens better from the very beginning of everything. And what I mean by that is this election integrity thing has become so polarizing, and it's un- it-, it breaks my heart. It really is heartbreaking to me. I'm a diehard Republican. I- I- I'm, pr- I'm proud of it. I don't run from my political ideology. I don't run from my political party. I don't run from the things that I believe. But it's divided us, and I know that I've had people that I'm friends with very upset with me that I didn't buy into the stolen election, that I complained vocally and often about the audit. And a divided party, a divided force of any kind rarely wins anything. And if it's about winning elections, that's part of the reason why it didn't happen. I want to see the fences mended. I've done my best not to burn bridges. I am. I have a great rapport with, with Bill Gates. I'm clo- I would consider myself friends with – uh, Clint Hickman, him, Clint and I are actually friends. I consider him a good friend, um, but I also have maintained a good rapport with the former Senate, Senate President Karen Fan and with other people that were running and were champions for the audit and the way it was being run. I did that intentionally because I didn't want to have a divide so bad within my party. This has nothing to do with the radio show. This has everything to do with my personal politics and involvement. I didn't want to see a divide that was so vast that it couldn't be bridged. And I just wanted to be able to maintain those relationships. And I hope that I still have. But this report that the the people could have seen, and there's a difference, and I've said I know that there are people out there that still think the election was stolen. And I'm talking about people, whether you believe it or not, reasonable people, smart people, not wearing a tinfoil hat, not living in their parents' basement. We're talking about reasonable, professional people that say, I've seen enough that I believe the election was stolen. We all know that there is a difference between what you may know and what you can prove. And I think if it had come out there from a Republican 
uh, office of attorney general that said we didn't find any evidence of it, or at least we didn't find enough evidence of it. And that's what this report said. There's no evidence of widespread fraud. If that had been out there, maybe the conversation would have shifted and the, at least the priorities of the conversation would have been shifted and it would have bode, it would have been a better situation for Republican candidates to talk about different issues than just election integrity. You know, the last thing I'll say about it is Kimberly Yee, who is the state treasurer, got more votes than any other candidate from any other race and any other party in the and she no one does anybody have any clue where the state treasurer stands on election integrity. Does she believe the election was stolen? Nobody knows. She didn't talk about it. She stayed away from it. Tom Horn, the superintendent of public instruction, a Republican, won the superintendent's job. Pretty remarkable. In the, the political climate, same thing with the superintendent. He didn't talk about election integrity. He stuck to his role and what he wanted to do in schools. And if more candidates would have been able to focus on some of the other things in the job, I think they would have fared better. That's just my stance. What we're going to do coming up just after 11 is we're going to go back to the economy, the Arizona tax burden. How much does Arizona pay in taxes, each individual, compared to the rest of the country? I've got the answer to that question. Next.